Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're <laughs> listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to Mumbrella Cast. I am an even more nasal than usual and very under the weather Vivian Kelly. So apologies in advance for any spluttering I subject you to. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is our somewhat healthier senior media reporter, Zoe Samios. And confirmed healthier. Our somewhat healthier news editor, Paul Wallbank. Still hanging in there. (laughs) And from what I understand, our 100% healthy deputy editor, Josie Tutty. Hello. (laughs) Plus, coming up later, Josie and Zoe will be talking to the creator of the hit true crime podcast, The Teacher's Pet, Hedley Thomas, about... How a journalist can legally accuse someone of murder. One of his colleagues said, you need to shred this chapter or you'll go to jail. Why true crime is the perfect genre for podcasting. I suspect people would have got fatigue. And the realities of producing a show on the fly. Leave the memory sticks in one of his smelly sneakers on the deck (laughs) and then drive off and have a McDonald's breakfast. But first, the week's topics... Alan Jones extends his Sydney lead in the latest radio ratings. Nine's NRL footy show axed after 25 years. APN Outdoor runs anti-rexer ad in Brisbane. And Wicked Campers gets told off again, but should we stop reporting it? So the latest radio ratings are out, and despite using the N-word on air and losing a defamation case brought against him during the ratings period... Alan Jones has extended his share in Sydney to a whopping 19%. For a point of comparison, Kyle and Jackie O on ARN's KISS FM regained their FM ratings crown with a 10.2% audience share. So Jones is still miles and miles ahead. So firstly, Zoe, I know this has been on your mind, but do you know what Macquarie Media thinks? Is Alan Jones worth the risk for the network? Does 19% justify saying the N-word on air? I think in the case of Macquarie Media, they would definitely argue yes, although as we've previously discussed between us, I don't agree with that. They were definitely really, really pleased with Alan Jones and Ray Hadley, who follows the um, Alan Jones Breakfast Show on 2GB in Sydney. Both of them received a higher share that they've had since 2011. So it wasn't just a 19% share, but it was one of the best. Keep in mind, Alan has won 214 consecutive surveys. So to achieve a high for even himself is quite remarkable. Look, in terms of the risk, I would say probably not for them because of the advertising revenue that comes in with share figures as high as this. I don't know if they buy or or sell based on share or cumulative audience. It depends on each network. But if you've got a 19 share, I really don't think as an advertiser, you're going to worry when you have so many people listening. It's more a case of, do you want to align the brand with someone like Alan? And if it were me personally, I would say no, but that's just my opinion. It's also not the first defamation case that he's lost. So I'll be interested to see where and when and if at all Macquarie Media does decide to draw a line because it would be so difficult in their minds to justify getting rid of someone who commands 19%. Definitely. And I think the other point to make during this survey period, and I might get the exact dates wrong, but it went from July until September 22, about mid-July to September 22, 
was that in that time there was another big problem in politics. We lost another prime minister in Malcolm Turnbull and he was replaced by Scott Morrison and Alan Jones and Ray Hadley were both major players in allegedly pushing him out, but also being the political commentators in that space. And that also ran in that period. What I did talk to the national executive producer, Michael Thompson, about was the value of the Macquarie Media brands in 2GB, 3AW, 6PR, 4BC. And when people are looking for something like political analysis, that is top of mind. And that's also what was clear. I'm sure controversy's got a part to play in, in the result. But what was also clear was that for political coverage, people wanted to go to, in this case, 2GB. Also, as I mentioned earlier, Kyle and Jackie O are back on top in Sydney, at least on the FM dial. Zoe, last survey, did ARN predict this? Did they say that Kyle and Jackie O's fall last survey was just a blip? They sure did. Uh, ARN's national pro, oh, national content director, they all have different names. It's hard <laughs> to remember. Duncan Campbell did say that it was just a one-off and that they would return. His view is that once a year, everyone decides that Kyle and Jackie O are not going to be the FM Sydney breakfast king and queen. And it, he, he just sees it as a pattern. So every time, every year about this time, it always falls off a little bit and then returns back. So incredibly predictable from, from their behalf. But the one thing that I would add to that is that Kyle and Jackie O's cumul- cumulative share was actually 1000 smaller than Nova FM Breakfast's Fitzy and Whipper. So from a cumulative audience perspective, and I cannot say cumulative (laughs) if you've worked that out, they're actually neck and neck. I did address that with Duncan today. He's not concerned about it at all. As as far as he's concerned, it's all about share and they have a strong lead over the other FM rivals in the city market. And you've obviously mentioned that on Radio Ratings Day, you spend a lot of time speaking to all the programming bosses. So Give us a fun fact from the story you'll be writing after all your interviews. Give the podcast listeners an inside view of the radio landscape. It was interesting, actually, because when I was looking uh, ahead of the the conversations that I do have with the programmers, I did look back at this time last year. And this time last year, we had huge, huge change in markets. So what I wanted to look at this time round was what was happening. And, and what I actually realized was there was some markets that I'd kind of left behind in all that analysis over the last year. One of them is Adelaide and Adelaide, I think just before last survey, announced that Amos Cat and Angus, who are the breakfast show there, were going to be leaving and they have left since since that announcement and they're going to be replaced by uh, two very well-known Adelaideans, if you can even call them that. Uh, Rebecca Morse and Andrew Costello, who I was corrected today, are to be known as Beck and Cozzy because people don't know them by their actual names. And they'll be starting next year. It was interesting to talk to the HIT Network's head of content, Gemma Fordham, about that and what she's expecting. She's hoping that with them coming in early next year, we're going to have a much more local focused show that will resonate with the audience. And and she suggested that that audience has changed over the years. So they're looking for, she kind of called it family friendly with a bit of an edge, but I'll be excited to see what that sounds like in 2019. Up next, Nine's NRL footy show gets the axe. So this week, the axe finally fell on Nine's NRL footy show after 25 years on air. Nine has said it is revolutionising its coverage of the game, but to me, this felt like a really long time coming. 
the glory days of the NRL footy show certainly feel like a lifetime ago for me. I know that at its peak, it pulled numbers as high as 370,000, but in recent years, it has often fallen below the 100,000 Metro viewer mark. Paul, to rely on blatant stereotypes, you probably fall into the demographic that enjoyed the NRL footy show in its heyday. So putting aside your personal preferences and to speak on behalf of all men, am I right? Did the footy show simply overstay its welcome? Well, all grumpy old men, you mean. Uh, Yeah, you really do get that feeling that it really went a decade beyond its welcome there. So really what we've seen over over recent years, increasing slide into irrelevance, it really wasn't that cutting edge reporting. When you talk to people who are rugby league fans, and in fact, for that matter, with the AFL, uh, with the AFL footy show as well, people really felt that it had really lost its way in reporting what was happening in that part of the world, in that sporting part. It's interesting with this revolutionising too that uh, when we look at the AFL world with the front bar coming in and uh, also the increased coverage of the women's game as well, this is really changing the way that things should be covered. So these panel shows of buffy blokes there uh, with maybe one or two female presenters as well really isn't the way that this is going. And uh, I think also the comedy had reached its had reached its limits a long time ago. You didn't think they were funny? <laughs> <laughs> Look, Paul uh, there alluded to bringing one or two women on board to somewhat counterbalance the the buffy blokes. His words, not mine. Uh, Zoe, I know they shook up the lineup of the NRL footy show in recent years. What happened there? They definitely did, and I think it actually plays into Paul's point really well. Uh, last year, the NRL was looking to basically attract more female audiences. So after 24 years, they got rid of Fatty, otherwise known as Paul Vorton, and they replaced him with Erin Mullen as the front runner. She was already appearing on the show, but they put her as sort of the lead. At that same time, Daryl Broman also revealed his contract hadn't been renewed, and he this year appeared as a as a regular panelist with Bo Ryan. So what we had at the beginning of this year was Aaron Molan, Ryan Girdler, and Andrew Johns running the show. What was interesting, and I actually don't have the numbers handy, but you can read it on our website, is that the female audience skew for 2018 was actually lower in Sydney and Brisbane than it was the previous year. So in an attempt to sort of attract new audiences, and and it's worth pointing out that there was overall decline as well, men came down too, but it didn't seem to attract maybe the audience that the NRL was after. In terms of what they're going to do next, last year they said it was going to be a new format, look and feel. This year they said new look, feel and sound. It sounds exactly the same in terms of the way they're presenting it. But Paul's right in that to be able to to produce something for the NRL fans, it needs to be completely reinvented, pulled up. I think they're talking a little bit more about on-site in games. I'll be curious to see what that is. I think it's worth just noting from my perspective the show has been in decline for a really long time. So I know that there are those out there taking joy in blaming Erin and a female host for its decline. And look, Zoe, you did mention numbers there that show it didn't have the desired effect of upping the female audience. But I think to, and not that you are, but there are people out there, particularly on Twitter, 
blaming Aaron for a show ending, I think, and to they Paul's point. It's been, it's been on the yeah. way out for a long time and she certainly can't be blamed for where it's ended up. Totally agree. And if anyone else would agree, it's Tom Malone, who's Nine's uh, sports boss, and he said that Erin will have a much more prominent role across various sports. Erin's a very talented broadcaster. She's been the face of NRL for a number of years alongside others. I definitely wouldn't attribute the decline to that. I would just attribute it to changing tastes, uh, particularly for Sydney and Brisbane. So up next, we talk anti-vaxxers. This week, APN Outdoor allowed an anti-vaxxer billboard to run in Brisbane. The Australian Vaccination Risks Network's ad read, vaccinated or unvaccinated, who is healthier and featured a photo of a baby. It comes at a pretty interesting time for APN Outdoor as it hit our headlines a little while back for not allowing an Aboriginal Victoria Deadly Questions campaign about Indigenous Australians to run on advice from the Outdoor Media Association. So, Josie, for people who might not be as across the politics of outdoor worlds, they might question why we're linking an Indigenous Australia campaign to one billboard in Brisbane promoting the anti-vax movement. Why did we link these and, and what's the link or the, the problem here? So in in both cases, APN sought advice from the Outdoor Media Association or OMA. The OMA refers to ad standards who set the rules for all advertising across Australia. Um, with the anti-vax campaign the OMA advised APN that there was no issue with it and that's why they decided to run it with the Indigenous Australia campaign the OMA advised that that they might run into some issues so that's actually why or at least they've told us that that's why they decided not to run it where do you draw the line how do you decide what's right and what's wrong and should we always be sort of deferring to ad standards in every case yeah I mean to be devil's advocate or, uh, you know, semi-spokesperson for APN Outdoor, I, I think that they would argue that with the Aboriginal Victoria Deadly Questions campaign, part of the problem was it was encouraging people to ask really thought-provoking and controversial questions to the Indigenous community to move the conversation forward. Part of the issue with doing that in an outdoor execution is people – whizzing by don't always get the full context so perhaps in a tv execution they might see right this is a bit like the abc tv program you can't ask that where you know you ask the questions just to advance it and move it forward with a billboard you might just see something that you think is really racist or really backwards and not absorb oh actually we're trying trying to do more to fix this divide between white Australia and and its first occupants. I think this is something I raised at the time when we were talking about the Deadly Questions campaign is the people who are supposedly outraged, are any of them the Aboriginal people themselves or is it just all of the media commentators who are constantly talking about people potentially being outraged? And I just wonder, you know, the the campaign itself was created in collaboration with Aboriginal Victorians. So that kind of answers that question for me but then you know it's it's a wider issue here with should APN always defer to the OMA when did any of the other outdoor operators who ran the ad did any of them get sound by ad standards for running it? Well I guess this is part of the issue with self-regulation but they almost have to refer to the bodies that they sign up for and, and whose standards they 
say they'll run by, you know, you can't just selectively be part of an industry body if they're going to stick to ad standards, rulings and advice via the OMA. They almost, they've got themselves in this funny position where if you ask, you then have to follow that advice. So that's what happened with APN because they decided to refer to the OMA. They then had to follow their advice. There's no point in asking the question if you're then going to ignore it. There's an interesting thing on this too that about the perception of potential risk where you have the Aboriginal Victoria campaign being partly shut down for this perceived potential risk that might happen, whereas we all know that the anti-vaxxer ad is going to get a lot of outrage and undoubtedly the complaints are already going into the ad standards board on this. And I guess that's something that I'm wondering with APN is obviously they need to to run things by ad standards if they feel like there's a risk, but why did they have to run that anti-vaxxer ad in the first place? Are they that desperate for the money from one billboard in Brisbane that they need to run it in the first place? Well, speaking of... One billboard, you're right. This campaign that we've dedicated this time to (laughs) is only one billboard in Brisbane. So are we just suckers? Is us talking about the ad part of the marketing strategy? If so, damn it. (laughs) It is a tricky question and it's something that we have to ask ourselves a lot. We're always running stories which are talking about ad standards have slammed this and this and this and sometimes it's even just one commenter has complained to the ad standards board but I I do think it is important to keep a record of these things and call companies out if they're doing wrong if if they just got away with it and no one even knew that ad standards had had called them out then I mean really what's the point of any of it? You are right that all it takes is one person complaining for the ad standards to actually look into it and and make a ruling of it. So something can get 500 complaints and it will be ruled on, but something can get one angry person complaining about racism against redheads and it will be treated in, in the same way. So this all obviously feeds into another story which has been haunting Mumbrella for years now, Wicked Campers. So the camper van rental company was slammed by ad standards twice this week, one time for referencing a Jesus, I can't believe I'm about to read this. <laughs> One time for referencing a massive cock on the side of a van in South Australia and for another van which read, and I'm even more upset that I have to read this, if you want to toughen up, grow a vagina, those things really can take a pounding. Wow. So that happened. I just read that on air. Um <laughs> Josie, you've already talked to this in terms of the anti-vax movement, but is getting banned just part of Wicked Campers' strategy and approach? Well, I've lived in Australia for a year. The only time I've ever heard about Wicked Campers is in these kind of stories where they're being slammed by the ad standards. Um, Yeah, I, I would agree with you, Jose. I have lived in Australia for a lot longer and admittedly I've heard a lot more about Wicked Campers since joining my brother and since these stories came out in terms of getting banned being part of the strategy I think that's a really interesting point and I would probably argue yes and I think and I'm sure we'll get to this that could be a problem I I, the immediate thing that comes to mind is that BMF ad uh, for sports bet that got banned with the uh, everyone's gonna have to remind me his name Ben Johnson yeah Ben Johnson drug cheat yep exactly and they were very intent on getting that ad banned and it did get banned I think part of it is to make the noise and to outrage, which is sort of what we've seen with the anti-vaxxers thing too. Yeah, I mean, you can get a segment on all the morning shows if you play your 
PR, right? You can then get panel discussions exactly. about where to draw the line and, and everything else. So it is definitely a strategy. Yeah. The other thing too with this though, with all marketing though, is what is the business outcome you want? And having lived in Australia a lot longer than everyone at the table, um, <laughs> no. I've, uh, uh, one of the Wicked Campus first appeared to me driving up the highway where I, I'm behind one and I'm like, where the hell how the hell is this legal? Which, of course, is most of the complaints on this. We are talking before about campaigns that have only had one or two complaints. Wicked has had thousands, if not tens of thousands, of complaints about this, and not just to add standards but to the various state uh, regulatory boards and also the registration and state governments as well. So I, I do just wonder what, what needs to be done to take these vehicles off the road because they're clearly not being taken off the road sometimes the complaints are even for the same thing over and over again maybe they've just redrawn the same phrase in a slightly different way what what do we need to do as a country to get these vehicles off the road that well, are so clearly discriminatory? My, my understanding is that i don't even think wicked campers bothers responding to ad standards anymore when they post the rulings they often have you know, Josie Tutty Corporation said in response, we're sorry and we've tweaked the ad or we've pulled it and it's not going to run anymore. Or the advertiser will disagree, but will still at least respond to the alleged breaches. Wicked campers, I think, honestly, they, they just, they don't give a shit. And, and it's part of their branding to not give a shit. You're not going to be the sort of brand that says um, vaginas can really take a pounding and then run away scared <laughs> from someone who calls themselves ad standards you know that would be terrible brand alignment for them but they are a toothless tiger and Josie you and I discussed this with the CEO of the AANA John Broom about whether industry self-regulation works when you have something that's almost optional and part of the problem with wicked campers is they're doing their branding and their advertising on their own assets on their own vehicles so APN Outdoor, for example, probably, hopefully, wouldn't run a billboard that says vaginas can really take a pounding because they would refer it to the OMA who would check the ad standards uh, rules and decide, no, no, that's not going to work. Wicked Campers isn't really answerable to anyone. They don't have to check with anyone. They're not paying a media owner to run their ad. They're painting it very crassly on their own vehicles. So, the only potential solution would be for governments to get involved and deregister vehicles, which I know has been a discussion. But then uh, the problem is they're camper vans and they can quite easily travel across state lines. The problem as well, as much as I'd like to see these vans gone, is it would probably set an alarming precedent with the government getting involved in offensive advertising. And I think that's the real risk here is that uh, the further wicked campers and renegades like that push it, of the risk of governments coming into this and beginning to regulate uh, much more directly, uh, fines for offensive behaviour, that sort of thing, coming in across um, advertising and eventually having government approval of advertising. Th those are the real risks that uh, we face with this sort of thing. You hear that, wicked campers? You're going to ruin it for everyone and then we won't be allowed to have nice things. So stop it. <laughs> Next, Josie and Zoe chat to the Australian's Headley Thomas, the mastermind behind the very popular The Teacher's Pet podcast. Lynette Dawson was reported missing by her husband, former Newtown Jets rugby league star Chris Dawson. He said I was going to get a hitman to kill Lynn and he rang me and said, Lynn's gone, she isn't coming back. I just want justice and I'd love her little girls to know she didn't leave them. 
And that clip was from The Teacher's Pet, an investigative podcast from The Australian, which delves into the disappearance and assumed murder of Lynette Dawson in the 1980s. Joining us now on the Mumbrella cast is Hedley Thomas, The Australian's national chief correspondent and investigative reporter behind the show, which went straight to number one in the iTunes podcast charts and months later is still hovering somewhere near the top. I believe it's in second place when I last looked. Welcome, Hedley. Thank you, JC. Thank you, Zoe. And yeah, also with us in the room is our senior media reporter, Zoe Samuels. Hello. So, Hedley, to kick things off, maybe do you want to just tell us a little bit about the case and how you first became involved in the investigation? Yeah, the case revolves around Lynn Dawson, who uh, was a much-loved sister and daughter and mother because she had two little girls aged four and two. And they lived with um, uh, Lynn's husband, Chris Dawson, on the northern beaches of Sydney in a place called Bayview. And it was a... Uh, an idyllic setting, um, surrounded by water, um, dense bush, close to the beach, and all of a sudden, without warning, Lynn disappears. And that occurred, I think, on the uh, evening of January 8, 1982, but could have been early the following morning. And for many years, she was treated as a missing woman, but... Um, uh, I believe, as do police, as do two coroners, that she was murdered by her husband, Chris, because he was in a very obsessive and intense relationship with a schoolgirl. He was a school teacher, he'd been a star footballer, and uh, his um, girlfriend, and she was just a girl, half his age, she was 16 when their relationship started, she wanted to be with Chris and he wanted to be with her. Um, he was no longer interested in his wife and um, she vanished, never seen or heard from again. And how did you first become involved in the investigation yourself? You are a reporter at the time? Yeah, it was 2001 and I remember uh, because I was then a, a features writer for the Korea Mail newspaper in Brisbane where I live and I read this um, news, newspaper report um, which was a report of one of the um, um, proceedings from the first inquest, which was being held in Sydney in that year. And the story transfixed me, and I can't put my finger on what exactly it was. I think it must have been a combination of factors. And I persuaded uh, my boss at the time to let me go to Sydney and try and research the story by meeting uh, Lynn Dawson's family and friends and trying to talk to the cops who had produced a brief of evidence for that first coroner in 2001. And uh, when I um, um, was in Sydney, you know, I went to a Northern Beaches police station and I read the brief of evidence. You know, I was really lucky to get co- cooperation from the uh, senior d- detective, Damien Loon. And I remember just sitting in this little room Um, an interview room, leafing hundreds of pages of evidence, taking copious notes, and uh, just being overwhelmed by the the tragedy of this story um, and what seemed to be the injustice of it. The circumstantial evidence was so compelling, pointing to Chris Dawson as his wife's most probable killer. And he'd got away with it. But what made it worse was um, 
levels of guilt uh, felt by Lynn's family and friends for not having raised uh, concerns about foul play much earlier. And also the fact that uh, Lynn's daughters, um, these little girls, and she'd tried really hard to have children. It took years for her to fall pregnant after um, um, surgical procedures. And she and Chris were even prepared and were preparing to adopt. And the idea that she would have run away from those kids was so abhorrent to everybody who knew her. And yet those girls were raised believing that their mother didn't care enough about them and, and just abandoned them. And that that was really cruel. So for all those reasons, I went back to Brisbane, wrote a detailed feature about it in 2001 and stayed in touch with Lynn's sister, Pat. She would write to me from time to time. We exchanged emails. I helped the family um, get their story aired on Australian Story in 2003. I thought it would be an amazing Australian story and suggested it to Deb Fleming, who was then in charge of Australian Story. And I always wanted to revisit the story. And uh, late last year, the opportunity arose and I thought I should try and do this as a podcast. It's been alluded to me before that when you actually started collating your information, then you went live with the first episode, there was much more information that you obviously received. How do you... Um, you know, balance all that and how do you consolidate it into into a podcast episode when there is all these different aspects to consider and more people coming forward as the podcast goes on? Yeah, look, I think it's fair to say I was really, you know, winging it for a while. Um, I hadn't done a podcast before and, you know, my family will tell you I'm terrible with technology. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My best friend through the development of the podcast um, was a little you know h2n zoom with two or three hundred bucks and uh, I did a lot of the interviews with that sitting on the dashboard of the car as I was driving because I was running out of time with all the people I was trying to get to so journeys in the car for interviews were a good way to you know use that time effectively um, and I didn't know how many episodes I'd do so it wasn't um, as neatly structured as perhaps a lot of podcasts are, I just felt that I had to follow a roughly linear process in terms of, you know, starting the story way back when Lynn actually disappears and moving forward. And there are all these key events as you move through, you know, 36 years. And I wanted to develop those as much as possible by re-interviewing people some of whom had been interviewed by police, some who had never been contacted before. And as I did that, more people came out of the woodwork. And then when the first episode was released, suddenly I I was deluged with more material from people, people that um, had never spoken to anybody before about what they'd seen, um, the culture of sex ring of teachers preying on students uh, from schools on the northern beaches, Um, other people who are close to Lynn and wish that they had said something at the time. So as a result of um, the fact that it was so fluid that I hadn't actually completed um, the series, I'd only really, you know, done one and a half, two episodes when we started, I was able to be quite nimble and, and work in this new material as it was pouring in after I'd vetted it, you know, checked it out properly. 
And I think that gave the episodes a sense of um, immediacy. And it was as if, um, you know, the investigation was sort of unfolding live. Even though I'd done a huge amount of investigation, I knew I had a lot of material up my sleeve, but I was getting new material that that had a, a very current feel to it. And uh, wherever possible, you know, I restructured some of the draft um, episodes I'd written, um, which was pretty much all the way through. And I quickly ran out of buffer, <laughs> <laughs> which was um, something I started panicking about, but then had a couple of beers and <laughs> got stuck in. And what do you think it is about podcasting specifically compared to just reading an article, reading the words, when you hear someone's voice, do you think it, it really does make people feel so much more impassioned by the story? Well, it must be because I've never had the kind of feedback um, to any story in my career um, over more than 30 years. The, the teacher's pet with all the different voices in it. Um, and those voices range from um, people like um, Anna, one of Lynn's friends, and she's this lovely Ita- Italian lady living up on the northern beaches, and, and you can just, you know, it's wrenching hearing her pain as she's describing her own remorse that she didn't do um, go to the police earlier. And and the voices of... of such decent people as Greg Sims, Lynn's brother, and Pat Jenkins. And I think when people hear these voices in the context of this story, this unsolved crime, um, they they just become a lot more invested than if they're reading it on the page. I've always been a print journalist, and uh, I I don't think that, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have seen an opportunity as a print journalist to be doing you know, what we might have once thought of as a radio documentary. This is something much more important than than a radio documentary. And it's combining the skills of print journalists, who I think are, by training, pretty thorough, pretty rigorous in fact-checking and, and can usually write effectively. And if they're getting the right interviews and doing a good job in making sure that the the story is measured. Yeah, in a podcast series, it makes an enormous difference. I I mean, if I had tried to write a 14-part series for The Australian that would only be in the newspaper, it might have been interesting for, you know, a section of The Australian's readership, but I I suspect people would have got fatigue. Whereas with this um, series, as I've seen, you know, it's just taken off uh, not just in Australia, but overseas. And it complements too, obviously. And when I was listening to it, I was, you know, found myself on the Australian trying to look through photos, trying to look through pictures, trying to fill out the story. It was like I was reading a book and I'd gone, okay, I, I can imagine what kind of person this is or what the house looks like, but I want to see, I want to find out more. And you were you were kind of complementing each other with, with the reporting in print or digital or whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yeah, that's right. The digital team at the Australian was great. You know, they were um, putting up new photos as we received them from people, um, friends who'd gone to school with Lynn Dawson at Sydney Girls High would provide class photos, for example. People produced photos from Chris and Paul Dawson's footballing days. Um, Neighbours came forward with pictures of, you know, the street, the location, and 
So there's a lot of material that we were able to rely on. Plus, we'd already um, collected a lot from just our own research. You were working on this for a while, I think. How, how many months was it? Um, it started at the um, very end of October. Wow, so a while. Yeah, and then yeah. it came out in what, it, was it May? May. May, yeah. 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 Did you ever feel at points like you were going mad or did you ever feel infuriated, frustrated? That hasn't stopped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, I was scared um, at various points because I felt that I had a remarkable story. I wanted to do it justice. But because I didn't have any experience in, in this field, and I was um, significantly, um, uh, I think, um, you know, worried that I would um, possibly just do something that you know is breaks all the rules of podcasting, which I didn't know that <laughs> I could just completely blow it up. And and um, and Rule then breaking I, is good. Yeah. <laughs> and then I pushed the um, the date out a bit, and I think that must have alarmed some of you know my managers in Sydney because they thought, well, you know, Hedley's been working on this since early November, <laughs> you know. Um, now he wants more time, you know, and um, I felt that um, I needed a bit more time just to get my own head straight on the detail. Um, and, you know, I didn't want to um, you know, increase the chances of it, of it being a fail. And I remember... Um, um, when the first episode came out in, I think, around May 16 or 17, I think it might have come out on a Thursday. Um, and over the weekend, it must have been shared a bit because one of my friends said, oh, it's done 10,000 listens. And this was by Sunday night. And I said, oh, that sounds great. He said, yeah, I think it's going to end up doing a lot. Like, this is a really good start. And by the end of your series, you know, you might you might do, you know, it's possible you could do up to a million listens throughout the whole series. And I thought that that was ridiculous. He must have been you know, sniffing glue or something to <laughs> come up with something like that. And then, of course, it just took off and um, each episode came on at a higher number. Um, do you know how many listens it's at now? Yeah, it's um, almost 23 million listens wow. now. Wow, because yeah. you had a massive audience from the US, didn't you? Yeah, a really big um, US audience started to kick in, mm. and the UK is very strong as well. There's definitely an appetite for this kind of thing in podcasting. If you look at the iTunes top podcasting list I referenced earlier, all of them seem to be these kind of true crime investigative podcasts. So I think it really does suit the medium quite well. Uh, one of the podcasts that's kind of next to yours in the iTunes top podcast is uh, one called Dr. Death, which is about a case in the US of a doctor who was accused of gross misconduct. You actually wrote a book on sort of a similar case here in Australia. Um, the book was Sick to Death, and it was about a US doctor who was practicing in Queensland, Jayant Patel, who was convicted of several deaths of his patients. How would you compare reporting on something like that, which was in a book form? I would imagine kind of similar length in terms of the amount of stuff you're sort of looking into and all of the case files and everything like that. How would you compare that to something like a podcast in terms of the production itself? Yeah, so with that book, which um, I think came in at about 130,000 words, and 
um, people do say I, I overwrite, so <laughs> it's my my podcasting's fault. a new thing now. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think when I look back on on the storytelling for that book and the reporting I was doing for the Courier Mail about that whole case, compared with the podcast, um, there are there are similarities, but when I consider the book, I think about something that took me so much time. Like I, I did have the all the material in front of me. I had all the evidence. I'd done all the interviews, um, but then writing um, chapter after chapter uh, was you know pretty time consuming, and and I had thankfully months and months up my sleeve. Whereas with the podcast, um, it just got so frenetic that I didn't have time to labor over every sentence and and just try and make sure that each you know line was nicely crafted and 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 worked well you know I would um with the podcast episodes because of the um the amount of well, the, the lack of time I had um <clears throat> I would start writing um on a Saturday usually with the racing channel on at home so I could <laughs> be slightly distracted. And uh, and then by Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening, um, I would be delivering the, um, the audio files and uh, my script for um, a few of the chapters of the episode that would be coming out the following Thursday. And I'd be delivering that to um, my son's mate, Zach, and Zach's a uni student, and, and he his job was to cut up the audio grabs and then deliver those to Slade, Slade Gibson, who is just the greatest um, podcast man who'd never done a podcast before. <laughs> He's a former guitarist for Savage Garden and an audio Amazing. engineer and works from his home in Brisbane with his own studio and I didn't know him before the series started we'd become great friends so his job was to build the episodes produce the music and and do all the mixing and so on but um, to try and make his job a bit easier given the workload Zach was doing the cuts and um, sorry I'm going off on a bit of a tangent <laughs> so but it yeah. still makes me laugh like I'd go over to Zach's house with a couple of memory sticks and Zach would be hungover or still asleep, so I'd leave the memory sticks in one of his smelly sneakers on the deck and then drive off and have a McDonald's breakfast and, you know, go and see Slade, come back in the afternoon, and Zach would have done the the, the, the cuts and put Amazing. them in a file on the stick and then I'd take that over to Slade and then I'd go home and write a couple more chapters. So it was that kind of production process. Um, and then I'd be in the studio um, usually Monday afternoon, um, and then Tuesday and Wednesday, and we'd be recording, um, you know, a few chapters at a time so that Slade could just keep that building process going. And then he would send to me the, the episode, usually, um, on a, uh, uh, we try to do it, um, you know, we were trying to release it, you know, by Thursday afternoons, Thursday evenings. But as the pressure got intense and with all the interviewing that I had to do as well, we found that um, we were falling a little bit behind. But he would try to get the episodes to me on a Thursday morning. He'd send me a link. And I'd listen to those. This was the rough cut. And and I'd, I'd have um, headphones on my laptop um, on my lap at home. And, and I'd be working on the full script and just 
just cutting, cutting, cutting and, you know, moving stuff around. And then I'd send that back to him um, chapter by chapter so that he could just do it while I was still editing. And then he would release the final um, episode to me to then send to Sydney to upload. And a couple of times, because um, some of our listeners got really impatient and we were worried about the clock, we shouldn't have been. We should have just said, no, we're just going to have to listen one last time to the final version or listen for the first time to the final version before we release it. But a couple of times the listeners, particularly um, there, there are a few um, on the northern beaches and they would have um, dinner parties that revolved around the release of the teacher's wow. pet last episode. So they would, they'd be um, emailing me. They'd worked out what my email address was saying, oh, hi, um, just wondering when's it going to drop? Like, <laughs> And I was like, That's oh. That's more pressure than guys, you probably um, need. <laughs> hopefully not too much longer, you know. <laughs> uh, and, um, and so then Slade would uh, – um, yeah, send me the final version, and, and yeah, a couple of times I didn't, I didn't listen at all. Slade said, "Look, I think it's right. I, 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 I don't think I missed anything, and he, he never did." But sounds like more fast paced as well. It, it kind of is almost like you're just cutting out the you, you do the interviews as you would for a normal news feature, but you just cut out the part where you have to transcribe it and write it all up, which is the part everyone hates anyway. <laughs> yeah, and I do lengthy interviews usually with people, so um, yeah, you might hear one minute of audio with someone um, that I've interviewed. But it might be, you know, an hour and 20 minutes. And I find, and I didn't understand this until I was reading um, the transcripts of, of my interviews and listening back to them, that I ask questions and then we go off and talk about something else. And then something must have been nagging in my mind in relation to those first questions I've asked. So I circle back to those and 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 so sometimes the grabs that I want are at the very start of a one-and-a-half-hour interview and at the very end, so you've got to listen to the whole thing again. <laughs> and I was going crazy um, at about the halfway point um, after probably six or seven episodes of The Teacher's Pet because I realised I'd actually run out of time to listen to the interviews that I'd done that I needed to rely on for the next episodes. And we didn't have, you know, this team or anything. It was myself and Slade producing the episodes um, with Zach doing this sort of part-time work, um, cutting up some of the the grabs that I identified, you know, for the episodes. So um, thankfully I was able to get a little more budget to um, bring on uh, <clears throat> Katrina Matthewson, who um, is a great journalist, and she was able to listen to all my um, interviews that I knew that I would be putting into future episodes or the next one <laughs> and uh, and then transcribing them and she would help me identify what she thought were the key points you know the best paragraphs and and that made a big difference I think I would have had a meltdown <laughs> if it hadn't been for that it's amazing how much work goes into it mm. um, I'm guessing the other thing between the between the book and, and the podcast is when you're writing a book and you're talking about gray areas and legal, you know, when you're talking about stuff and, and accusing people of murder or manslaughter, you have more control when you're writing. How did you tread that line in a podcast? Because I, I listened to you carefully with the way that you said it, but I feel like that's very challenging when there's so many episodes and mm. they're long. Yeah, no, that's a really good question, Zoe. So uh, early on, months before the podcast series began, 
uh, I spoke to John Paul Cashin, who is a defamation specialist, and he advises News Corp, he advises The Australian, and I've known JP for years. Uh, I told him, look, I've got this podcast series coming up, and um, you know it's going to be risky in parts because of the subject matter we're dealing with you know alleged murder and and sexual assault and so on and uh, so I sent him a lot of material um, before we'd produced an episode um, that he could read into you know, witness statements and um, transcript from in- inquests and so on and then when it started so he he was well briefed he was across the case and that was a, that was a big help and then when the episodes started, um, I would send to him the chapters. Um, an episode might have had 15 chapters or it might have had 10 chapters. And um, he would um, um, read those and then give advice back pretty quickly on what, if anything, we needed to take out. Most times it was clear, you know, um, and I think that's partly because I've done, you know, a lot of this kind of reporting and I understand where the boundaries are and he'd already read so much so you know it was good a couple of times um one in particular uh, in fact JP was away but um one of his colleagues said look you need to shred this chapter or you'll go to jail um yeah (laughs) and it was in relation to family court reporting and um and I had a view that I'd be able to report a lot of what had gone on in this family court case because the documents arising from that case had been um, part of the evidence in the inquests. And so, therefore, they must have become public documents that didn't normally um, see the light of day. But uh, the advice was, no, that's not going to save you. You know, you still need to observe the very strict reporting um, um, arrangements around the family court. So, yeah, JP was a great help, and the legaling you know, occurred with every word, um, and um, we haven't had a single legal challenge. Do you think the fact that two coroners did find the fact that Chris Dawson did murder Lynette, do you think that helped you? Hugely, hugely, um, because um, those coroners, one of whom I interviewed for the last episode, um, had the benefit of reading the evidence. You know, they're judicial officers. They had tested witnesses. Um, the second one had tested witnesses over five days of public hearings. And um, and they came to that considered view. And, and so um, we had very strong defences uh, in the event of a defamation challenge because of those findings as well as my own material and new findings. When you started this podcast, I mean, you'd obviously you're very passionate about the case and it is and it is a case that's compelled or, or got the attention of not only Australia but, but the world. What was your end goal with it? Was it awareness? Do you want justice? Did you want to, you know, I, I guess you've had a much bigger audience listening this time than, than the feature from to the early 2000s. What do you hope to achieve from from the work that you've done? I I was very upfront with um, Lynn Dawson's brother and sister when I started this um, investigation and when I asked them, would they co- cooperate with me? Because they asked the same question, what's the end game? And 
my objective was to find new evidence that would um, lead to the prosecution that should have occurred years ago. And, you know, that's a bit, it's a little difficult sometimes for people, um, you know, who, who, who will hear me say that to reconcile that statement with the idea of a journalist being objective straight down the middle, sitting on the fence. But this is a different case. It's not as if this case, um, you enter it, you start from the perspective of um, uh, he's um, no doubt a completely innocent man and there could be any number of criminals responsible for the death of his wife. In this case, I started with the view that the coroner's got it right and that it had already been thoroughly tested through the criminal justice system, through the the inquest, and I wasn't going to sort of bullshit to my listeners um, by pretending that there were other more plausible explanations for Lynn's disappearance. I wanted to, um, without... Um, going over the top i needed to be measured but i wanted to just be transparent about that and um um, having said that if i had found new evidence that pointed in a completely different direction you know that indicated that chris had been very unfairly treated that would have become a really big part of the story you know but it, it never arose and um and so, yeah, my my angle, my target, my objective was that um, this had been a travesty of justice for a long time, completely screwed up in the early years by the cops, um, almost certainly misunderstood and stuffed up by um, officers within the office of the director of public prosecutions, and therefore, um, you know, the system had failed. This was. Uh, crying out for journalism to try to shine a light on it and correct the mistakes and put it back on track, hopefully find new evidence and uh, uh, see it prosecuted. Obviously with this case, and, and you've talked a bit about the, the power of journalism in a case like this, and you've talked we've talked about the power of podcasting and, and what that's done. For those who uh, haven't listened to your podcast series or are listening right now, Obviously, in recent weeks, the police did go back to the Bayview property and did look in the soil that you had spoken about. They had no luck. What's next for you now? Yeah, I've been doing more interviews um, since the uh, the 14th episode, which was um, the last for the time being. And uh, I've been doing further investigations and I've found some new witnesses who um, have spoken about some really interesting aspects of the case. So I'm planning to do several more episodes. I'm not sure exactly when. I thought it was time to leave both the police and the DPP um, to to their important work in reviewing the brief of evidence that the police um, um, delivered to the DPP earlier this year. And I think that... Um, um, in relation to the police search, you know, it was very disappointing for the family and Lynn's friends and many listeners and you know myself as well that 
there there was um, no evidence uncovered at the dig at the house. Uh, full credit to the police for doing a really thorough job there. It's the one job they should have done uh, many years ago. But um, it was appropriate that it was done, and uh, I don't think the police are going to give up that easily. I, I'm sure that for the last 20 years, um, the police have known who Lynn Dawson's most probable murder is, and uh, I'm fairly confident that they would like to charge him. All they need is um, a green light from the DPP, and as a result of the new evidence that the police have found, that I've found, and um, other evidence that I've shared with the police that hasn't been in the podcast, I think there's a really good chance that this case will be taken to trial and Chris Dawson will have his time in court and he can um, explain why, in his view, he's been the victim of a witch hunt and and protest his innocence. And that's his right too. I mean, he he has been judged by many people as a man who got away with murder, um, myself included. And I think uh, um, his own story and um, his... Um, defence is extremely important. I wasn't wasn't able to interview Chris. I asked him repeatedly, um, and I even tried to um, put forward the defence argument, what it would be by asking a very experienced defence lawyer how they would attack a prosecution case against Chris, how they would discredit witnesses who sounded compelling in my podcasts but um, would not sound as credible if they were on the stand. And, and so we tried to do those things to, to be you know, as fair as possible under the circumstances. But, yeah, it's overdue. And um, my hope is that this case can be finally resolved in coming months. certainly within the next year I could talk about this all day but I think we'll have to end it there sadly as we're out of time but thank you very much for coming in Headley thank you so much for having me thank you Headley and just before we go a bit of housekeeping thank you for supporting the Mumbrella cast since we brought it back if you haven't had a chance yet we'd love it if you could rate it or even write a review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts That will help other people find it. Plus, in the coming weeks, we'll be closing off entries for the Mumbrella Next Awards. These are the awards for those who have joined the industry during Mumbrella's lifetime, so within the past 10 years. There's no age limit. It's about identifying the up-and-comers, regardless of age, who have been in the industry for a decade or less. It's well worth getting involved, not least because it will coincide with Mumbrella's 10th birthday bash, but also because we have an absolutely stellar jury. In addition to leaders from the industry bodies, so John Broom from the AANA, Gay Leroy from the IAB, Kim Portrait from Think TV, and Tony Hale from the Communications Council, we have Lisa Ronson, the CMO of Tourism Australia, Peter Horgan, the CEO of Omnicom Media Group. Kathy O'Connor, the CEO of Nova Entertainment, Lee Terry, the APAC CEO of IPG Media Brands, and Amy Buchanan, the CEO of OMD. Plus, in recent hours, I've confirmed Lou Barrett from News Corp, Anne Parsons from QMS Media, 
and Greg Highwood, currently CEO of Fairfax Media. Honestly, I could fill a whole podcast with the incredible people I have on this jury. So head to mumbrella.com.au slash next awards to get your entry done and your name, face, resume and achievements in front of these industry giants. That's all for now. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. And thanks for sticking with me as I gradually lose my voice. Bye. (laughs) Bye.